I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hello and welcome to The Hedgehog and the Fox. This week, we slow down with geographer Danny Dorling, who's on the programme to talk about his recent book, Slow Down. Danny has given his book one of those subtitles that clearly maps out the terrain he intends to cover. The end of the Great Acceleration, and why it's good for the planet, the economy, and our lives. You may currently be feeling at best ambivalent about the idea of slowdown, with so many of us enduring a COVID-19-enforced pause and desperate to know when we might get back up to normal speed. Danny's message is not that humanity collectively needs to slam on the brakes, but that slowdown in many aspects of modern life, though not quite all, is already happening, and we need to think about its consequences and potential. In our day-to-day lives, we may fail to see it, he suggests, but look at the patterns in the data, and slowdown becomes visible. As he puts it in his opening pages, an era is ending. But he's not out to paint a picture of societal collapse and some dystopian regression to barbarism. In his first chapter, he writes, There are good seasons to come, but not fertile seasons in which our numbers, inventions and aggregate wealth grow exponentially. In fact, our numbers will very soon stop growing at all. The past few generations have seen great progress, as well as great suffering, including the worst of all wars in terms of fatalities, genocides, and the most despicable of all human behaviours, including the planning and construction required for the mass nuclear annihilation of our species. It may take us some time to accept that we now face a future of fewer discoveries, fewer new gizmos, and fewer, quote, great men. But is this such a bitter pill to swallow? We will also see fewer despots, less destruction, and less extreme poverty. And we will never again worship the, quote, creative destruction that 20th century economists so stupidly lauded at the height of the Great Acceleration. So for Dorling, slowdown is potentially a good thing. Not only better than headlong acceleration, but our only hope of continuing to inhabit this planet. Not a guarantee of utopia, but a prospect of some sort of stable, sustainable life. But if slowdown sets the context, 
it doesn't determine the political choices that will have to be made. And so much of what we believe about our lives and our world is still about quickening change, the need to keep up or be left behind, the obligation to produce more or be found wanting. We're not imaginatively well equipped to deal with the idea of slowdown. Canadian Premier Justin Trudeau put it like this in 2018. Think about it, he said. The pace of change has never been this fast, yet it will never be this slow again. That's the strongly ingrained perception that Danny challenges in his book. And that's where we started when we spoke on Skype. We have this incredible lag in terms of what we think of as normal. So in the 1960s, things were speeding up incredibly fast. The, the population on the planet of humans was speeding up faster than it had ever done in the history of our species. Uh, we are speeding up computers, just the beginnings of them going very, very quickly. We had the final outcome of great technological innovations. You know, the 747 took off in 1968. But that created a sort of a way in which we talk about speed, which is really, really old-fashioned uh, and, is, and is based on what was, used, what was normally in, in my and yours parents' uh, childhood. You know, they grew, grew up for a time of acceleration. We haven't. We've grown up for a time of things still changing, but not changing as quickly. And our children have grown up for a time of really very, very little change. You know, that the computers were there from the point that they could first see a screen. They haven't seen a new innovation in their lifetimes. How did you decide what it was really important to pay attention to? You know, what was the signal and what was the noise? I mean, I imagine you sort of surrounded by spreadsheets of data and trying to sift through it and make some sense of it. I am slightly addicted to data. It, it, it's an affliction. There's a quite nerdy answer to this, which is that the data has to be of pretty high quality uh, if you are to be able to get an idea about the direction of change and further the change and change of the acceleration and deceleration. So a very large number of things that we worry about, we don't actually measure well enough to be able to tell. Then the second thing is you have to work out over what period. And if you take something like stocks and shares, it turns out if you average them over a whole quarter, over three months or over a year, you begin to get patterns that are quite smooth. These have nothing to do with being able to predict how much stocks and shares are going to be worth in the future. Right? You just can't do that. But you can begin to, to take out the noise and to see the general trends. And the periods over which it makes sense to smooth alter. So you just have to play around with it until you begin to see a pattern. So for this pandemic, it is three to five days. For GDP, it is a decade. It's, it, it's, and I haven't worked out a rule to this. So what I do is look, change the amplitude and see when it begins to form something that you can actually write about and talk about and, and it makes sense. If you make the amplitude too wide, you get nothing. There's no trend there at all. If you make it too close, you just get a jumble. It's, it's tuning in, if you like, trying to tune into right. a time series. If you imagine I'm sort of changing a switch and moving it around until I begin to think I can see something. Now, you used an interesting phrase there, which I want you to, to just unpack a bit, because it's quite important to the whole argument of the book, and people may not be familiar with it. You sort of mentioned quite quickly the acceleration of deceleration. Now, just, just unpack that for me. Okay, many things are still rising. 
Um, so we're still in a period where our numbers on the planet are still increasing. We're still in a period where our pollution, well, has been rising quite dramatically. It's actually doubling every 22, 23 years. What I'm interested in is the change in the speed of that rise. So are we getting not quite as much as we were getting before? I promise not to come back to the pandemic again, but in a way it's become much easier to, it's become much easier to explain why deceleration really, really matters. When you're looking at a number of deaths going up every day and you begin to realise what really matters is they don't go up by as much tomorrow as they went up yesterday. That's what you want to see. And deceleration is that idea of something increasing but not increasing as much. And then you get to a point where it plateaus and then you get to a point when you begin to get falls and those falls can themselves accelerate and then it becomes confusing because you're talking about a very, very big fast reduction, whereas before we're talking about a very big increase being an acceleration. So the language isn't easy to explain uh, these things, but but the key concept is we're trying to get a sense of is the speed of change slowing as compared to the speed of change in a generation ago, two generations ago, and three generations ago? I also wanted to mention the graphs in your book, and I know that people can get scared by graphs, but I think the graphs in your book are probably, un well, unlike any that I've seen in similar books before, because they're not simple lines that rise or fall. They look like sort of more like natural forms. They they curve and they spiral and they sometimes go into into loops. Now, they're not just pretty to look at. They're actually telling a story. And I, I know that maybe the best way is for people who are intrigued by this to go to your website or get a hold of the, the book itself to look at them. But can you just say why you are trying to show information in a way that most people will not be familiar with? The, the reason I use these graphs is because on a normal graph of change, it's very hard to see the change in the rate of change. Whereas what these graphs do is emphasize the changing speed of change themselves. It's actually on the horizontal axis of the graph, the vertical axis of the graph shows the thing which is being counted. They aren't normally used in social science, that they are used by some physicists and a little bit in maths, but not very much. I did naively think when I first started using them, oh, am I the first person to use these in social science? Uh, and then after about four years of writing the book, I actually discovered that people in Japan have been using these for 30 right. years in social science. I have a brilliant illustrator called Kirsty McClure, and Kirsty redrew these from the kind of crude uh, Excel sheets that I had to make them more user-friendly. It's exactly the same data. But she puts you know, the little baby sliding down some of the slopes and so on. There's, qu there's quite a lot of, of additions. Um, also, she helped put a lot of text on the graph. So I've put a lot of explanation there to try to stop people being too afraid. Because I've, I know, I, I've learned over the decades, most people are absolutely fearful of graphs. And they will pretend, if they're middle class, they will pretend they understand the graph. Right? <laughs> and they, they will never get, tell, actually tell you they don't. But with these ones, because you'll never seen them before, there's no shame in, in going, what on earth yeah. is that? And you're unbashed about explaining what they mean. But I think you've explained three times. You know, you say you may have skipped the graphs, but actually they're saying something quite important. So if you were to try and sum up what they're saying that you couldn't, that it would, you know, take thousands of words to say, and that normal graphs wouldn't actually convey, what is the message that, that, that you and your illustrator have been at pains to try and point out? I mean, I know there are lots of sub-messages within it, but what is it that what it is that comes out of looking at information in, in that way? Because that's a lot, a lot of the burden of your book. Uh, the key message is, in this time series, something fundamentally changed. 
and it fundamentally changed at this particular point. And you can see it if you kind of look at the graph and squint slightly. In terms of GDP, you can see it in 1950. That's when the acceleration begins to decelerate. In terms of something like Wikipedia, it's three or four years after the creation of Wikipedia that the acceleration begins to, to decelerate. But it's saying in each case, if you look at the data, you can see that there was a sea change and you can see when the sea change occurred. And there almost always is a sea change. And for those few things where there haven't been one, so the accelerating number of flights, of, you know, the small number of us who fly, you've got to remember, most human beings don't fly. We forget, we forget this. The small number of us who fly have been flying more and more and more. And that actually has come to an end at, at the moment. Everything eventually decelerates. But what's happening now is that more, thi more things are decelerating than normal. They can't all decelerate forever. So we're, we're going through a period of deceleration and probably we're going to head towards some kind of stability. That you can't tell. It could all begin to accelerate again. But you know, I spend a lot of time in a book trying to suggest why acceleration again is, is unlikely. Because the counter proposition would be that we merely go through cycles or that the things that we should pay attention to perhaps shift. So, you know, maybe heavy industry is replaced by, by something else, such as data or, or high tech or nanotechnology or whatever. So how do you begin to sort of see something that underlies it so you can say, actually, no, that the sort of totality of, of what we're doing on this planet, that the, the trend is, is towards slowdown rather than just being heavy. Coal is going to be replaced by a different form of energy. I mean, one way to get away from the idea that we go through cycles is just looking back in time where we can look back in time. And as soon as you go six, seven or eight generations back, most people lived lives very like their parents and grandparents. So this idea of, of cycles doesn't work. We, we can see cycles in some things. So there's some graphs I really like doing about book publishing, which goes, right. Which goes right back to the, the printing press. And the cycles there are, are all to do in the very first years of publishing with whether your books were being burned for being heretics. Uh, and you can actually see on, on these graphs, publishers stop publishing when their books are burned and then they quietly start burning uh, publishing again. Um, but in general, we haven't had a pattern of, of cycles in the past. We've had a big acceleration really from say the 1850s onwards in rich countries and then worldwide from 1900 onwards and a deceleration from the late 60s onwards. Some things, it's very hard for them to accelerate again. So the number of human beings could accelerate if we found a way of getting off the planet and we could terraform the moon. And you know, and it's, it is a bit ridiculous, um, the yeah. idea that we'll, we'll manage to do that. Yeah, I mean, there will be things that we can't imagine at the moment that will accelerate in future. That, that almost certainly will happen. At the end of the book, I, I, I speculate about society in Japan being something where you actually are seeing changes in the social order, which are incredibly rapid changes for a place like, like Japan, about who can mix with who and, and, and so on. But almost by definition, if it's to be new and different, it isn't something we're likely to find easy to imagine. So, so the game you can play in your imagination is pretend you're your grandfather, and then pretend you're your grandfather and you're 20 years old, and then say, hmm, you know, imagine if people were allowed to do this, live with who they like in this way. And, you know, most people in the past would have said, oh, don't be so stupid. That'll never happen. So the accelerations that we will get in future are very likely to be things 
that we find difficult to imagine now because we're so used to our social order. But they almost certainly won't be about how much we produce by weight. They almost certainly won't be about carbon pollution. You know, the idea that we're going to be so stupid we carry on polluting the planet at the rate we have been, you know, it's very depressing and there's no need for that. And most of the things that are currently decelerating and about to fall, there are good reasons why they should continue to fall. It's not generally beneficial that they have been accelerating. But you do you do admit early on in the book that debt and data and carbon emissions are three big ones and they are not decelerating, are they? Uh, the, the, maybe the, the, rate, the growth rate in student debt, for example, is, and car debt is, is decelerating, but the actual amount of it is still going up quite impressively. It's still going up quite impressively. You've got to remember, though, and this is American data. America is, is the worst in the world for debt. It's a, it's, a, it's a country that just lives off debt. But we began to see a deceleration and I look at look at the, the debt for automobiles and the debt for mortgages. There comes a point when how can you carry on telling people that this particular house they're going to buy is worth such an enormous amount of money that they have to borrow millions of dollars from you for the privilege of living in what essentially is just shelter. It's bricks and plaster and a roof. I think you can logically say people have been taken for a ride here, particularly when you look at population change. You know, when you work out most rich countries in the world are going to begin to see population falls. People have been having less than two children each for a very long time. How are we going to demand that people pay so much for property when there are fewer people needing to live in those properties? But also, I mean, if you look, if you look at the moment, it is fascinating how quickly things can change that we don't think can change. You know, the world's billionaires at the moment have perhaps temporarily lost a third of their wealth. Bitcoins have collapsed. The price of gold's actually fallen. A lot of things that we think are very solid can actually completely evaporate. It's based on sentiment and the idea that nothing ever changes very much. Student debt, you know, if students and young people start to say, is going to university going to make me safe in the future? Or are the safe jobs the ones that people actually really need to be running rather than, you know, so, you know, and you could you could begin to see a scenario in which uh, countries like the UK and the USA, which have student debt, might begin to avert to be more like countries like Germany and France and Finland and Sweden, which don't. And similarly with with mortgages and, and lending, or the idea that you you know car companies in the US stopped really being car companies and they became debt companies. There's no reason why they have to carry on being debt companies. In general, in societies, when you have a society that's based on a lot of debt, it doesn't tend to be very stable for a very long period of time. So what what you're positing is a change in lots of fundamental aspects of the world and, and, and human life on it. How do you think that sort of relates to the possibility of of structural economic and political change? Because it's one thing for for those trends to be suggesting various potentiality. But we know that that there are very strong vested interests. There are strong entrenched assumptions that are almost like mantras, you know, about growth and GDP and what's good for the economy. And we've seen that recently in COVID. There's a sort of battle between what we consider to be good for the economy and growth and, 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 and health needs and so on. So what do you think, given these trends that you're identifying, the potential is 
for political change and how 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 might that begin to manifest itself oh this is this is almost certainly where my bias is coming in most strongly because you know i'm an optimist i want things to get better for people for whom they're not better it annoys me intensely that we do things in certain ways that simply make a tiny number of people much much richer but not much happier however a lot of the rationale for things like debt being acceptable is the idea of future growth when my parents got a mortgage in the 1960s to buy a house, it didn't matter at all what mortgage they got because inflation in house prices meant it was meaningless. We don't get inflation in house prices forever. They eventually stop rising as, as a ratio to, to wages. They always have and they always will. So a lot of the way that our economic life is, is based on at the moment is on a promise of future growth. You can behave like this because the future will be bigger. The cake will be bigger. Don't worry about how it's shared out now. There'll be more for your children in future. As it becomes more and more obvious that that isn't occurring, it becomes harder to sell this particular story. And also, you get incredible different reactions to things. So this is last time I mentioned pandemic. But pandemic appears in the book many times in epidemic. Uh, the 1918-1991 in the book is just a blip. World economic uh, growth fell by 14% and then rose by 16% the next year. It was almost as if it had never happened. Our last really, really big pandemic, the 1968 pandemic, is one that almost everybody forgets. They don't know. We had an influenza pandemic in 1968. Over a million people died worldwide, over 100,000 in the USA. Did we panic? Did we shut anything down? We didn't do anything at all because we were on an accelerating growth curve at the time. It wasn't just that we didn't know. It was that we were heading in a particular direction. Now, this one, which is much, much smaller, 50 times smaller at the moment than the 1968 pandemic, this hits at a time of global deceleration. We already had economic growth slowing down worldwide. We had fears of a recession beginning in Germany. We had the trade war between China and the USA. Things were very delicately balanced. There wasn't a kind of engine behind economic growth that meant it was moving forward. In fact, it turns out huge numbers of firms were utterly precarious, relying for cash flow on the money that they were receiving in the week before. When you're decelerating, relatively small knocks can have a big effect and can actually increase the rate of deceleration. So the idea that we will be able to tell people to behave as we behaved in the 60s, 70s, 80s and 90s, trust us, allow inequality to grow, it'll be okay, get a degree, you'll get a good job, don't worry, you'll be able to start a family, you'll get a house. It's not true anymore. It's not true in the time of deceleration. It's not how you can have a, a good life. And that slowly, slowly begins to dawn. You, you can see the best analogy for this, there's not much of it in the book, is nuclear war. When nuclear weapons came in, a tiny number of people said this is madness. Most people say this is great for defending the West, the free world, and so on. In the 1960s, a small number of hippies complained about it, but most people thought this was good and loyal. And you know, and then by the end of the 80s, slowly it dawned, even on the hawks on the far right, actually, this is assured destruction. We are going to die. Something will go wrong. For God's sake, get rid of them. And, and we got rid of 90% of nuclear weapons. I think in a sort of similar way, as it becomes obvious that the way in which we have been living can't, can't continue, we'll begin to see a shift. And because we're in the middle of the shift, it won't be that perceptible. 
uh, you know, you'll begin to see conservative governments spending lots of money on public services. Okay, that's happened recently. But before the, before recently, they were increasing taxation on landlords. The heads of FTSE 100 companies in this country took a pay cut of £100 an hour last year. I mean, they have a lot of, they get paid many hundreds of pounds an hour. Yes. Uh, but that's the first pay cut since the 60s. So I, I could see signs of things changing before. The problem now is it becomes very hard to step back and look at the, the, the long-term change. And what we tend to do is we tend to ascribe things to particular events. We tend to say, oh, growth was rising, but then there was a crisis in the 70s, or there was unemployment in the 80s, or a dot-com dot crash. Whereas actually, growth was falling. Uh, you know, the rate of growth was, was falling. Uh, and it wasn't because of all these individual events. It was just something which was happening. But we like stories which are about individual events and not about underlying long-term changes. Now, while I'd like to show your optimism about Conservative government spending lots of money on, on social good, isn't there a counterexample in the 2008 crash after which we've had a prolonged period of cuts to all sorts of welfare and, and social projects and the, the imposition of austerity? Isn't it equally possible to imagine coming through this crisis and having an even more swinging bout of austerity visited on us? Uh, we could, although we were unusual after 2008. Uh, if you looked elsewhere in Europe, a country like Finland, which is at the other extreme, was already spending near to 50% of its GDP on public services and simply ramped it up to 54% when GDP fell. But other countries increased their public spending after uh, the economic crash of 2008. We were the most extreme country in all of Europe in terms of cutting the proportion of GDP that we spend on public services, even as GDP itself fell. Um, the only place that looked at all similar was Ireland, but then Ireland managed to increase its GDP massively by encouraging certain American firms uh, to be based there. So when you're that unusual, as the UK was, it's quite hard to maintain that position. Furthermore, Increasing public spending, all we've done is increase it to still a bit below the level of Germany. <laughs> we haven't even headed towards Scandinavian levels yet. There's a hell of a lot of leeway uh, for what you can do. You can try and tell people after this, oh, you've got to tighten your belts again. There is no magic money tree. The problem is that you've actually shown them the magic money tree, you know, the one you said <laughs> didn't exist. <laughs> you know? um, now, what you cannot have you can't have people living the life of Riley. You can't have, have people charging enormous amounts of rent and getting richer and richer and ensure that other people are not penniless and starving. You can't have both those things. You've got a choice. You've got to choose between, are we going to make sure that nobody goes hungry and everybody gets shelter? And there are jobs for the school leavers. You know, what are school leavers going to do this September? What are people leaving university going to do this September? It's choice. It's, you know, there's not a magic market that will decide. It's, it's the choice of government uh, whether to ensure and plan and there's enough time that there are things for people to do to feel valuable or not. And they can't both have that and also spend money on their mansions or go on cruise holidays. But luckily, you know, who in their right mind would want to go on a cruise holiday now? <laughs> yes, the bottom's slightly fallen out of that market. I mean, you, you talk about being optimistic, Danny. 
But you also see human greed as a very profound driver of, of a lot of the problems that, that we are in. And it's, it's difficult to see, you know, human greed has, has usually expanded to fill whatever spaces it can. It's difficult to see how that, it, that fundamental attribute is going to be tamed anytime soon. It is hard, but, you know, we're, we are living in the part of Europe in which that fundamental attribute is most celebrated, wrongly. Um, there was a lovely film uh, released uh, was it just before after Christmas called Greed, which again is one of these sort of signs of, of change. It, it it featured many many celebrities who I think were probably giving up their time for free, because it was it was satire on how celebrities are paid to appear at rich people's parties as if they're their friends. Uh, so I can't believe they're being paid. Now these are the kinds of signs. Once you, once you begin to get people talking about greed as embarrassing and wrong in mainstream society. Once people begin to complain about billionaires keeping their wealth on an offshore island and asking for government handouts, and that complaint becomes normal and nobody defends the greedy, and I haven't heard any defending of the greedy for quite some months now, you can see the kind of... And this has happened before. This happened in the 1930s with mass unemployment. Uh, there came a point, okay, after the general strike and after unemployment went to two, three, four million, that entrepreneurs and businessmen, all men then, were no longer celebrated, and bosses of, of building societies at the time of banks actually took pay cuts. There's a time when moral sentiment alters. Oswald Foulkes was a banker in the 30s, and he was one of the best friends of uh, John Maynard Keynes. And he said to Keynes at one point, what you've done, Keynes, isn't actually helped explain the great theory of economics. What you've done is help change the moral sentiment. And, and the moral sentiment of a country changes. Now, you know, if ever you're going to get a moral sentiment changing, we had 10 years of austerity. It didn't work. We had falling life expectancy. We had infant mortality, which was also falling. We had mass poverty. We had huge student debt. We had young people not being able to start families, not being able to get a home. It was pretty utterly miserable. And we were told that there was no alternative to this. Turns out there is an alternative to this. We're just not so stupid as to go back that quickly uh, again to, to the deal that will be, will be given before. And do you think we need to start paying more attention to things which are harder to measure than GDP, such as human happiness and human flourishing? Certainly, and, and it's not easy to do. And there isn't a UN report on happiness that comes out every year. I only just noticed Finland for the third year in a row is the happiest place on earth. And Finland also, by the way, uh, recorded the lowest infant mortality rate ever in the history of the species, you know. But, and these things, these things really matter. You know, your children surviving you really matter. There being almost zero chance of any harm to your children really, really matters. And not feeling a failure matters. That's quite important. Whereas we had constructed society in a way where we, we, we said, oh, if somebody does really well, it's all down to them, which in fact is often chance. If somebody does badly, it's all down to them. Um, we can begin to see, actually, that that isn't how things work. And also one useful thing about the, the situation we're currently in, fewer people actually feel failures at the moment. You know, if you can't get a job, well, you can't get a job because there are no jobs. If your business has crashed, well, everybody else's business has crashed. People were running businesses that were near to crashing before all these events. Um, also, an understanding of chance is really important. American economists have written very well about this, but it generally isn't understood. People who do well in life, okay, they often do work hard, but there are many, many, many people who work hard for every single one who does well. 
and almost always it is luck, good or bad luck. And we find it hard to understand the importance of luck, uh, whereas I think now it becomes easier. And particularly as things are slowing down, there won't be as many winners of that kind. And also, you know, what does it mean to win just to get richer than people around you? Is, is that really winning? Is that easier to say for people, you know, like us who are in our, you know, mid-50s and perhaps have a particular vantage point compared to someone who's 21 and just at the start and hoping to... And I take your point about, you know, having been sold certain expectations like buying a house that, that will then go on and accrue value and that, that not being a stable promise for the future. But is there a question of vantage point? And also we are in a, a very rich country if you're on a different part of the the economic growth curve you may be aspiring to things that we've that we've enjoyed for you know 20 or 30 years but they haven't enjoyed at all but is that problematic do you think that your view of being more laid back about acquisitions and material things and travel and so on is easier when you've when you've had it and you've done it for for, for, for 30 years oh that you're absolutely right i mean you well travel in particular travel something that that some human beings really appear to have to do. We have it in our nature to want to migrate, move around and travel. Um, so you can't tell people not to travel. You can get people to give up cars. Actually, that doesn't make, necessarily make them much, much more happy, but we can look at that. And yet, yes, there is something very 50-ish about this book. It has to, has, has to be said. Um, you know, it's, 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 it's kind of comforting if you're, if you're over the middle of life. And people will continue to want to show off and to rank and to achieve things. I'm just trying to say that as the amount of money and wealth doesn't accelerate, it makes more sense if you want to show off and achieve things. So think of ways of doing that, which don't require you depriving other people of things such as their money. You know, that isn't a clever way to do well in future. There are lots of other things that you can do. There are lots of other ways in which you could be happy and you can achieve. But in a world in which there isn't going to be more and more you getting a greater slice of it for yourself isn't necessarily going to be seen as a good thing or actually that easy to do anymore. For places that are poorer, it's, well, firstly, remarkable how in some ways less poor they are than 10 or 20 years ago. I mean, I'm on the left, so I'm loath to admit that. But when you do look at things like infant mortality rates or, or, or the rate at which people are able to feed themselves, it's a dramatic change there still needs to be an improvement another entire generational shift of improvement but the, th the thing which is at most shocking is that the fastest falls in, in the number of children people are having places where people still have five or six children on average each those are the places where fertility rates are currently plummeting and they're heading towards three or two that will be utterly different in a, in a generation's time and the, the tricky thing will actually be dealing with a halving, an actual halving of the number of children. You know, China dealt with it, but in a very, very ordered, controlled society, most of the poor world is about to have to deal with the population deceleration that China had under the one-child policy without a one-child policy. And that's the kind of thing that worries me more than continued growth in the poorest parts of the world, is this incredible cultural adjustment to, amongst women getting education, finding out what's going on elsewhere and telling men they don't want to get pregnant again and again and again. If you want one thing that, that's changing fastest in the world is that deceleration of births in the poorest parts of the world at the moment. I think we should, we should look at more carefully and think, 
when your social security system is your children and you stop having so many children, what needs to change most quickly in those places? So if your positive message is there is a prospect of future stability and it's greater stability than any of us alive have, have known, the catch is it could be quite a bumpy ride getting to that state. It could be a bumpy ride getting to that state and we may find it frightening uh, because we've used growth as our kind of hope for the future. We're used to the idea that our children will be richer than us. We might find it quite boring, <laughs> the, the idea that, you know, our children will live lives similar to us, that they will have the same kind of, of, of things to us. They will have a washing machine and a tumble dryer, but they won't have a third or a fourth white box that does something else for them. We haven't done this for many generations of actually lived for a time when two generations' lives have not been that different. We don't know how to do it. We changed so much that we became utterly utterly used to change. We've got to remember the first tractor only appeared just over a century ago. You know, it's the changes in people's lives before from horses to tractors to motor cars. My grandfather used to play football as a boy on the A1. Um, up in Yorkshire because they could play football on it in between the cars coming. All our folk memories, our stories from our relatives, are actually stories of incredible change, turned into stories about things getting better, you know, because we're, that's, we're, we're geared towards looking at that and forgetting some of the terrible tragedies of the past. We're going to have to find a new way of talking, which is this change not happening doesn't mean that things are not getting better. The stability of decreasing consumption, an idea that the planet isn't going to carry on accelerating in temperature at the rate it has been, is highly, highly comforting and is something getting better. And that's going to be difficult, is, is changing the narrative and the stories away from you've got more, a second home is an achievement, those kind of things. I mean, who wants to have two homes to clean? And... I was talking to Danny Dawling about his recent book, Slow Down the end of the Great Acceleration, and why it's good for the planet, the economy, and our lives. The illustrations in the book are by Kirsten McClure, and it's available from Yale University Press. If you've enjoyed this interview, you'll find more than 60 others in the series at thehedgehogandthefox.com. You can subscribe to the programme wherever you get your podcasts, catch up on any interviews you've missed, and leave a review. I'll be back again soon with another programme. So until then, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.